Hebrews chapter 9, we're going to begin in verses 25 through 20. Then we're going to jump over to chapter 10, verses 26 and 27. And uh, I'm going to try to tie these together. Hopefully I'll do that successfully. Uh, I was just going to preach on chapter 9, and then I was just kind of reading through Hebrews. And man, this this little phrase in chapter 10 captivated me, and I, I really think that that they, it serves as bookends, a sandwich almost. And uh, so I want, to, I want to give that to you today. Hebrews 9, beginning in verse 25. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, So Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now chapter 10, verse 26. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. And a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Father, I ask you to lead us through this passage this morning. I ask for your grace, God, to give us uh, faith to embrace the realities of the scriptures. God, help us not to live in denial. God, help us not to make up our own realities. But God, I pray that we would embrace what you've told us in the scriptures today about death and about judgment and about Christ's return. Father, transform us today. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> Yesterday at Clinton's funeral, I, uh, I talked about how what you think about Jesus really affects what you think about death. And uh, I believe that's totally true, especially for believers um, but this morning, I, I want to start out talking to you about what do you think about death? Because uh, that's interesting. What, what, what do you think about death? There's a lot of people that believe a lot of different things about death. And uh, let me give you, give you some of the prominent ones. Um, first of all, there, there are a bunch of people, and, and uh, actually these folks are hard for me to take seriously in the sense that, uh, not that I don't take them seriously, but that, that I really believe that they really believe what they're telling me, I guess. Uh, that it's just hard for me to embrace that anybody in their heart of hearts would believe this. But there, there's a growing number of people that, that say uh, that they believe that when you die, that's just it. Okay, And they believe that because they don't believe that they're anything but a body. Okay, uh, They don't believe that there is anything such as a, an afterlife. They don't believe that there's anything more to them than, than body. They don't believe in a soul. They don't believe in a spirit. So in other words, they, they kind of take the view that all of this is a cosmic accident, that it just, bam, happened accidentally. You happened accidentally. Basically, you are just made up of cells and organs and tissue. And when that stops, when that wears out, when that quits, then obviously you quit. You just cease to exist. So when your body stops working, then you stop and you, you, don't, you don't exist anymore. You're, you're basically a machine. And when the machine wears out or breaks down or stops working, then you, you don't exist anymore. They put your body in the ground and that's it for you. Now, if you hold that view of death, then I would say thinking about death is really not a bad deal at all. I mean, there, I, there, if, I, if I believe that, then I would not be scared of death at all. 
Uh, why, why be scared of it? Because, you know, when you die, you just cease to exist, which is not a bad thing. It's not a bothersome thing anyway, right? Um, prior to 1972, I did not exist, and it didn't bother me a bit, you know? The 60s, I didn't care about them, you know? I mean, I didn't at all because I wasn't there. I, I didn't exist. Uh, if I believed that, there, there'd be no reason to fear death. There'd be no reason to even care about death. There would not be a whole lot of reason to care about life uh, because you live and whatever happens, happens, and you do whatever you're going to do, and then someday your body stops working, and that's just it. You're done. You don't exist anymore, and uh, you don't care because you don't exist, and well, you can't care if you don't exist, right? And so there are people that say, at least, that they believe that they are just physical beings and that when they die, it's not a big deal because death just makes you not exist. Now, a growing other portion of people, and this is much more common, especially in Oklahoma, they believe in an afterlife, okay? So the implication of that is they believe there's something in them that is more than body, okay? So in other words, they believe in some kind of soul, some kind of spirit. In other words, that there's something in you besides just your, your fingers and toes and nose and, and brain and lungs and heart. They believe that there's actually a spirit, a soul, something that lives on after the body, after the grave. And, and, and the biggest portion of these folks would believe that, yes, there is something after the grave, and it's good, and most people go there, okay? Some would say all. The bigger portion of people would say most. Uh, I, 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 think mo- I think the larger portion of people would say most people go there because nobody wants to be neighbors with Hitler in the afterlife, right? Nobody wants to be hanging out with Jim Jones or have him across the street. And, and so most folks are going to say good people, you know, and by good people, just as long as you don't do anything horrible, okay? You're going you're gonna to go to this afterlife. Now, because this view is not based on the Bible, it's not based on Jesus, it's not based on the prophets, and it's not based on anything other than basically this is what I want to believe, because of that, Heaven is actually, or the afterlife, is actually not very appealing. You know, I don't know, I've watched those movies before where, uh, you know, when, when you die, you just become like a, a spirit, you know, you just kind of float around, you know, you just float around and watch people, you know, you don't make a difference, you don't, you don't interact with people, you don't do anything, you just kind of, I don't know what you do, you just float around and watch everybody live, I guess, you know, which is very unappealing to me. Uh, the bigger portion, if you, if you have, buy Hallmark cards or um, commercials or whatever, you know, they depict the afterlife probably because they don't know what else to do. It's kind of fluffy clouds. You're in a toga or a diaper, and you got some kind of soft musical instrument, you know, usually guitar or harp or flute, you know, which, again, not very exciting to me. I mean, I, I'd rather be in Rocky Mountain National Park uh, than on a puffy cloud with a harp and a sheet, you know, uh, but... But the reason is there's no basis for those, and it's basically just this is what I want to believe because what everybody tells me or what the Bible tells me is too scary for me, and so I'm going to create my own reality. Americans are great at doing that, by the way. We're great at saying, you know, this is what I want to believe. Well, why do you believe that? Well, it's just because I want it. You know, it's what what I want to be true, and so I'm I'm going to create my reality. I'm going to to tell, I'm I'm going to say what is true is whatever I think is true. Well, now... What I'm going to tell you this morning has some basis to it because it is based on the one guy in all of human history who died and was in the grave for three days and rose again, never to die again, appeared to more than 500 witnesses, and then ascended publicly into heaven. Okay, So let me tell you what Jesus says, which is what the Bible says. And what Jesus says is, is, is condensed, I think, in Hebrews 9.27. This is kind of a good little outline here. We're going to use the rest of the service. Verse 27 says, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, 
And after that comes judgment. All right, very simply, you live once, you die once, and then you're judged, okay? You live once, you die once, you, and then you're judged. That's, that's essentially what the Scriptures would say. And the Scriptures would tell us, they would back up the reason why that is, is because of sin, okay? The reason we die, the reason there's judgment is because of sin. If you go way back to the beginning, to the book of Genesis, you find that God created Adam and Eve, put him in a perfect world, and God gave Adam a command, okay? Adam, this is my plan for you. This is, your, this is what's best for you. You've got to trust me. And in chapter 2, verse 17, God said, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Okay? All is well. He's got one command. All you got to do is trust God. Okay? Well, the serpent enters the scene, the devil. He begins to tempt Eve. He begins to tempt Eve by, 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 by convince, trying to convince Eve that God is not trustworthy. And in verse 4, here's the summary of his argument. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Okay? So God says, you eat it, you're going to die. The serpent says, no, 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 you're not going to die. And so Adam and Eve tragically believe the serpent rather than God. They take of the fruit and they, they enter into sin. And Romans 6.23 says, the wages of sin is death. And guess what? Adam died and Eve died and Seth died and Abel was murdered and Cain died and Noah died and Abraham died and Isaac died and Jacob died and Joseph died and Judah died and Levi died. And, and 6,000 years later, we're at 100% on this deal, okay? 100% besides Jesus of people who have lived and died, okay? And, and so there's abundant evidence that I think would say that, okay, the Bible's got a point here, you know, everybody dies. We're, we're all going to leave this world. We're going to leave this world because of sin. Sin brought death, and we're all going to die. Now, the Bible would say after that comes the judgment, okay? Again, we are, we are creatures, not creator. Nobody got yourself here. You're not here by accident. God created you. He put you here. He created the world. It's his world. It's his rules. It's his law. He's the king. He's the, he's the sovereign creator of the universe. And so the Bible is very clear that there's going to be a reckoning for sin, that there's going to be an accounting for, for, for transgressing against God, for ignoring God, for, for, for doing our own thing, for, um, for disobeying God. Matthew 12, 36 says, I tell you, on the day of judgment, People will give an account for every careless word that they speak. Second Peter chapter 2, verse 9 says, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from trials and to keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. Second Peter 3, verse 7 says, By the same word, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction. Acts chapter 17, I really like this one because it ties it to the resurrection. Acts 17.30 says, The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day. Listen to this. God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he's appointed, and of this he has given assurance. All right, you can be sure this is true. How? By raising him from the dead. How do you know Jesus knows what he's talking about? Well, he's the only guy that died, was in the grave three days, rose again, and lives forevermore. Revelation chapter 20 gives us the final picture of the judgment. Revelation 20 verse 12 says this, And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. So the Bible is very clear. You live once, you die once, and then you face the judgment. Now, what Hebrews 9 is telling us is there is a beautiful picture of the gospel that interrupts that sequence, okay? 
So for believers, it's not just you live, you die, you're judged. There's something else that happens here, okay? And that's something else that, ha- is, that happens is that Jesus Christ appeared. Look at verse 26. It says, He has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself, okay? So for believers, this is different because Jesus came into our world, he appeared, he lived the perfect life, and then he sacrificed himself on our behalf. Jesus became our atoning sacrifice. Jesus became the, 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 the blood sacrifice for our sins to take the punishment for us. Verse 28 gives a great little phrase here that, that is throughout the Bible. It says, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many. If you're in our Team Kid program, uh, you, you have memorized first, uh, was it first Peter 2.24, I believe it is. It says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds we have been healed. Okay, we, we, We've talked a lot in our children's ministry this semester about, about how Jesus bears our sins. Okay, The word bear means he carries them. That's what, that's what happened. When Jesus Christ was on the cross, he was carrying my sin. All right, My sin was placed upon him and Jesus carried the weight of it, the weight of the guilt of sin. I don't know if you've ever done anything you're really ashamed of, done anything that, you know, just you sinned, and you sinned big time. And man, the conviction of the Holy Spirit came upon you, and there's that heavy feeling in your heart. Anybody ever, real, ever, ever experienced that? There, there's that just conviction, man, I just blew it, and I've sinned against God. Okay, can you imagine, and I don't think we can, Jesus bearing the sin of all, of all the redeemed of God's people, okay? All that sin being thrust upon him, bearing the, the, the guilt of it, the misery of it, the consequences of it, and then even something that we have no idea how to understand, the wrath of God for it. You see, you and I have never yet experienced the wrath of God. Hopefully, if you're a believer, you never will, okay? But the wrath of God for our sins was placed on Jesus, and he carried all of that, okay? That's the beauty of the gospel. We have this high priest who who sits in the heavens, Jesus with his indestructible life, this is all last week, who presents his sacrifice of himself, he presents his righteous life to the Father, all on our behalf, okay? So that when he comes again, it's not going to be to judge, It's not judge us anyway, it's not going to be to take care of sin, but notice verse 28, it says, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who, it's incredibly important, who eagerly wait for him. Okay, I, want, I want to answer this question. Who is Jesus going to save when he comes back? Who is it? It's those who are eagerly waiting for him. That's incredibly important. Okay? That's incredibly important for each one of us because, because that leads me to ask the question of myself, am I eagerly waiting for Jesus? Okay? Because the Bible says that's who he's coming to save. That's who he's coming to rescue. Okay? The characteristic of those whom Christ will save at his return is those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now that, that word save may be interesting to you. Uh, there at the end of verse 28 where it says he will appear a second time not to deal with sin but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. You see, I, I think if I were to ask David Biffle today, if I were to ask David, I'd say, David, are you saved? You know what I, I'm completely certain David would say? David would say, yes, I am saved, okay? And if I said, what do you mean by that, David? I think he would probably say something to the effect of, well, I'm, I've repented of my sins, I've put my faith in Christ, I'm a follower of Jesus, and so the Holy Spirit lives inside of me, and my sins have been taken away, and Christ's righteousness is in my account. 
and, 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 and I'm in the family of God. I, I think that's what David would say. And, and I completely agree with that. David is saved in that way. I am saved in that way. But here's the deal. If you're a believer in Jesus, there is more to come. Okay? That's not the, what we have now is not all that we will ever have. Okay? There's going to be more benefits and blessings of salvation coming at Jesus Christ's return. Okay? And so verse 28 says the characteristic of a believer is we eagerly wait for that more. We eagerly wait for Christ to return, partly because we love him. We, we love Jesus. That's what it means to be a believer is that we've seen the glory of Jesus. We've seen the greatness of Jesus. And we love him. We want to be with him. We enjoy him. We desire fellowship with Christ. Okay? If, if, if in October when I go to India for 10 days, you know, I, I, I really believe it. At day nine, I, I'm going to really miss my wife. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to want to see her. I'm going to want to fellowship with her. I'm going to want to sit down and eat supper with her. I'm going to want to tell stories. I'm going to see how the kids are doing. I'm going to miss my wife. And I deeply hope that she will feel the same way, okay? Uh, because we, 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 we love each other. And part of loving each other is we, we want to be together, okay? Well, if you love Jesus, then, then that ought to be the characteristic of your life. You're eagerly waiting for him. You're eagerly wanting, desiring fellowship with him. And we're desiring to have what he has for us, the more that is to come. Now, what exactly is the more? Because the Bible talks a lot about that. What's the more to come? Well, in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 13 and 14, it says, In him you also, when you heard the truth of the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. See, that's what David has now. That's what I have now. If you believe, that's what you have now. But look at verse 14. Who is the guarantee, that's the down payment of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. You see, Ephesians says there's an inheritance. There's this possession that's coming for us. And right now, we just have the down payment. Right now, we have the first installment. But when Christ comes again, man, we get the, we get the whole thing. That's when we get the balloon payment, all right? It's coming to us, all right? Now, what exactly are we eagerly waiting for? What exactly is coming to us when Christ returns? Well, let me take you a little trip through the New Testament. We'll pick out some stuff here, okay? 1 Corinthians 1, 7. Very simply says, so that you are not lacking in any spiritual gift as you wait, there's the word, as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, what do we get? We get more of Jesus, okay? We get more of Jesus. If you're a Christian here today, what I know about you was at some point, you got a glimpse of who Jesus is. And when you got a glimpse of who Jesus is, you saw, man, I can trust him. He is faithful. He is dependable. He's glorious. He's good. He's loving. He's powerful. He's mighty. He's, he's adventurous. He's satisfying. And you wanted him, okay? But what the Bible says is that when Christ comes back, you're going to get the whole thing, okay? He's, Christ is going to be revealed to us, the revealing of Jesus, all right? And 1 John carries that thought and says, man, there's going to be something that happens to you when you see him, okay? 1 John 3, 2 says, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when he appears, when he comes back, we shall be like him because we will see him as he is. Okay? So we're going to be transformed. So we've got, we, we, we've got a glimpse of Jesus now, and that was enough to draw us to him, for us to put our faith in him. But when Christ returns, we're going to see him in all of his glory, and we're going to be physically changed. Okay? The Bible talks a lot about that physical transformation. Philippians chapter 3, 20 and 21. It says, But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior. You hear that? We await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like 
his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Well, part of what's going to happen when Christ comes back, he's going to transform our bodies. I'm no longer going to have to deal with a broken body of sin. I'm no longer going to have to deal with a mind that, that, that gets prideful and arrogant and selfish and, and self-pitying. We're going to have to deal with that. God's going to redeem our bodies as well as our souls. Galatians chapter 5, verse 5 says, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. And now my favorite one, and you might just want to camp out here because we're going to be here for several verses, is Romans chapter 8. All right, Romans 8 kind of goes through in detail this whole, whole waiting for the, 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 the salvation that Jesus is bringing. Okay, So we're going to start in verse 18. Verse 18 says, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory. You see that? The glory that is to be revealed to us. All right, so, so what's coming for us? This, 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 this glory, this truckload, this trainload, this, this mass of glory, all right? The glory of Jesus, so the manifold perfections of God, so power in its infinite degree, and mercy in its infinite degree, and love in its infinite degree, and, and adventure and satisfaction, and all of that, that glory is to be revealed to us. Verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing. Notice this, even creation eagerly waits for Jesus to come back, okay? Longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to decay and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. Verse 22, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth. We're going to talk about that in just a second, okay? Until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit. That's just what I was talking about with my example with David and myself. We have the first fruits, okay? We, 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 we have salvation in Christ, but that's just the first fruits, okay? There's more harvest to come. And notice where this goes. We who have the first fruits of the Spirit... This is verse 23, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly. Same words, wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we are saved. All right, so do you see the the picture that the New Testament presents? It it, it presents a picture of of the mark of a believer is we, we love Jesus, okay? We can't wait to be with Jesus. We can't wait for Jesus to make everything right. We can't wait to, to, to be in the presence of God. We can't wait for Jesus to come and to bring all these things he's bringing, the inheritance and the glory and the transformation that is coming with Christ. The mark of a believer is that we eagerly await for Christ to come. I like in Romans 8 the image of childbirth is used. It says that, that creation is groaning in labor pains, all right? Now, that makes sense to me because I've not had a baby, but I've been present with five of them. And in all five of those, I cannot remember a time where during the labor process, Emma said, you know what? Let's, let's just wait. Let's just wait. I'll just go ahead and be in labor for a while. I'm fine with that. You know, uh, we, there's no hurry on this deal. You know, no, 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 that was not it at all. Man, she wanted that baby to come, right? She wanted that baby out. She wanted, she wanted the prize of life. She was not willing. I mean, there was an eager expectation for, for that baby to be born. You know, even before she went into labor, those last months, man, we're walking around the, the Wheat Ridge Avenue, you know, walking, 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 trying to get her to go into labor because she was eagerly awaiting the prize of life. And the Bible says you ought to be eagerly awaiting Jesus Christ return, okay? Are we all on the same page, okay? The mark of a believer, if you're saying, I'm a believer, okay, what ought to be in your life, what you ought to be feeling is an eager expectation 
for Jesus Christ to return and for you to be with him and to have all that he is bringing with him for yourself, okay? Now, that's going to manifest itself in some things. First of all, it's going to manifest itself in a joyful, hopeful anticipation that enables you to push through trials. That's what Romans 8 said. It said that the, the, the trials of this life are, are, are not even comparable to the glory that's coming, all right? So, so in other words, the Christian who is eagerly awaiting Christ's coming, that guy is able to push through trials. He's able to push through difficulty. Why? Because the, the greatness of what is coming for him is so good, okay? So he's got a joyful anticipation. He's got a joyful, hopeful anticipation of what's coming. And second of all, it ought to, it ought to involve a preparedness, a positioning oneself to receive what's coming. If we go back to the labor pains, most all moms, part of what it means to eagerly await that baby is they begin to get everything ready. They begin to get the nursery ready. They begin to get, it's called nesting, by the way. Have you ever heard of that? Nesting, you know? They go into this, they're just getting everything ready. They want, they're, ready they're ready for that baby to come, okay? If you look through the New Testament, at every, every passage that, that talks about Jesus coming back, I, I didn't go look at them all, but I would say almost all or all of them have to do with you being prepared, okay? Remember the, uh, the virgins who are in the wedding? Remember that? Half of them were prepared. They had the oil for the lamps. Half of them didn't. And so it's late at night. The bridegroom knocks. The wedding started. Let's go. Half of them have to go to the marketplace and get more oil. They're not ready. And they get left out of the wedding. Remember all the stewardship parables where, where Jesus would, would, would depict a master who leaves his, 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 his servants in charge of his business. And then he goes away. And then those who are eagerly awaiting his return, what do they do? Man, they're busy at the business. They're getting stuff done. They're, they're making a profit for their master. But there's always one guy, he doesn't do anything. Why? He doesn't love the master. He's not eagerly awaiting his return. Okay, and so, so, so in all these things, if, if the mark of a believer is that we are eagerly awaiting the return of Christ, because we want to be with him, we love him, and all the things he's bringing for us, then we're going to have a joyful, hopeful anticipation, and we're going to position ourselves to be ready. You know, it's funny to me that one of the biggest obstacles to our small group ministry, one of the biggest obstacles to Christ-centered relationships in Lincoln Avenue Baptist Church, I hope it's not the biggest, I really do, but I think it's in the top three, is people not wanting to, people, not wanting to have other folks into their home when it's not clean or up to their standards. Isn't that funny? So in other words, what we're saying is, man, I, 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 I got I to gotta go in and clean. I got I to gotta, I gotta have days of getting ready. I got to deal with my mess. I've got to throw out all my trash. I've got to get everything looking just right. I've got to get prepared. You know why? Because Ed's coming over. Now, see, that's the funny thing, Ed, is I don't think it does. And honestly, Ed, I'm pretty comfortable with you seeing my mess. You're not the king, you know? Uh, but, but, but really, you guys know, that's a big deal. I mean, we, we think, we, man, I got to get prepared because somebody's coming over. And I, I, I want to I be able to present well here. Thursday night, I went and visited uh, one of our new moms at Fifth Street, Amber Bates, and had a beautiful little baby. And uh, just went over, popped in. Avery and I popped in for just a, a quick visit just to pray with them. And, uh, man, baby's not been sleeping. You could tell she was really tired, you know. Um, she greeted us. We had a nice visit. Uh, but 
There was like a toy on the floor. I remember like two toys being on the floor. She got two other little kids, by the way, as well. But the, the hardwood floor, you could almost see a reflection in it. That's how clean it was. But you, what did Amber feel like she had to do? I'm sorry, Pastor, for my mess. You know, I'm sorry. It's, it's terrible. Man. All right, if that's true of us, guys, if that's real, if we're that concerned about Ed coming over, what should be the case for Jesus coming? He's coming back, and my life's going to be inspected. He's coming back, and I'm going to present my one life to him. Well, I'm telling you, ladies, if you're that concerned about your floor, I tell you what, you better be rocketing it with your life, okay? I mean, really. If you're that concerned about Ed coming over, I mean, I expect it to be ramped up about a billion times for getting your life, cleaning your mess out of your life, and just getting your life ready for the inspection of the king. Because as believers, who are we? We are those who eagerly await Christ's return. Okay, now, shift gears, okay? Here's where it gets interesting. I want you to jump into chapter 10. This is a difficult passage to interpret, so we're not even really going to try, okay? I'm not going to go through the whole passage. I just, I just want you to focus on a cool little section right here at the beginning, okay? Verse 26 says, If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Now, first of all, who is this? Let's just talk about that. Well, it's those who go on sinning deliberately, okay? Now, the Bible talks about this. This is a mark of unbelief, okay? This is a mark that you're not a Christian, okay? If if with full knowledge of the truth, you've heard the truth, you've heard the gospel, you've been around church, you've seen believers, you've experienced the blessings of God, and you turn away from that, okay? You you turn back into sin. That is a mark that you do not believe, all right? As we've been going through Hebrews, we've seen all these marks of a believer, A believer is a person who's progressing in the faith. They're progressing in knowing Christ and loving Christ and having Christ. They're going forward, okay? But this says if if you're sinning deliberately, you're not progressing. You're going backward, okay? A mark that we've seen in Hebrews is if you're a true believer, you're going to persevere in the faith. You're going to love Jesus, right? And you're going to keep loving Jesus through trials and struggles, tribulations. But these folks who go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of truth, they're not persevering in trusting Christ. They're going back into sin. They're not responding to the word of God. That's another one we saw in Hebrews 5. Believers respond to the word of God. We're convicted when we sin. We hear the word of God. We repent. We turn away. We confess. We get things right. But, but these folks are not. And in fact, 1 John kind of nails down who, who, who uh, the writer of Hebrews is talking about here. 1 John chapter 3, verse, let me, let me read a bunch of verses here. We'll start in verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning. Now, making a practice of sinning is different than falling into sin, okay? Because 1 John 1, 8 says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. That's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about is a person who lives a habitual life of sin. Listen to what he says. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. Okay, look at verse 6. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him, okay? Look at verse um, 9. No one born of God makes a practice of sinning. For God's seed abides in him and he cannot keep on sinning because he's been born of God. All right, so, so John is presenting, what Hebrews is presenting, is that the person who lives a pattern of habitual sin, okay? Continual, willful, habitual sin. They're not repenting. They get hit with the word of God, they don't repent. They get hit with the word of God, they don't confess. They get hit with the word of God, they don't change direction. They continue in a path of unrepentant sin, 
The writer of Hebrews says that person does not have a sacrifice for sins. They're not connected to Jesus. Jesus is not their high priest. Jesus' sacrifice is not for them. They're not joined to Jesus. And so notice what should be the reality in their life. Verse 27, they should have a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. You hear that? That should be what they feel. They should feel a fearful expectation of judgment. The Bible is very clear about God's judgment. It is a thing to be feared. Notice it's a fury of fire. In other words, it's an image meant to say that this horrific destroying power engulfs you. You're immersed in it. Okay? A quick, quick spin through the New Testament. Mark 9, 42 says it's better to have a millstone hung around your neck and thrown into the sea than it is to go into the judgment of God. Matthew 5, 29, 30 says it's better to gouge out your eye or cut off your hand than it is to keep in sin and face the judgment of God. Luke 16, 24 talks about a man who's in hell and he longs for even a drop of water to be put on his tongue for comfort. Revelation 6, 5, 15, and 17 talks about people who, who in the judgment of God will call upon the rocks and the mountains to fall on them, to hide them from God's wrath, okay? It's a bad thing. And the Bible says that if you do not have Jesus, if you do not have a sacrifice for your sins, then you should have a fearful expectation of judgment. Have you ever been in a car wreck and you saw it coming? That's exactly what I mean. I was in a wreck in the church van about 10 years ago. I was in Enid, I was going to, to the, the hospital to see the glistens, and um, going down that main drag in Enid, and there was like a Camaro that stopped real suddenly, and another car that stopped real suddenly in front, in front of me, and then I stopped real suddenly, and we all made it. And you know, I had this feeling of, whew, you know, we all, nobody hit each other. I glanced up in my mirror, and I saw this teenage girl barreling behind me. She's not even looking at me. She's not even slowing down. I mean, I, I knew. I had a fearful expectation of what was about to happen. I knew that she could not stop. She was not going to stop. She did not see me. And so it was basically brace for impact, okay? The Bible is saying, if you don't have Jesus as a sacrifice for your sins, then you ought to be bracing for impact, okay? You ought to have this fearful expectation of the fact that you're going to live and you're going to die and then you're going to face the judgment of God. One of the reasons, and there's probably more than one, but one of the reasons I will probably never be a police officer is because I don't want to be tased, okay? And, 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 and you know, I think if, if, if I was going to be one, I would just tell them, hey, just sometime in the next 10 years, just hit me when I'm not looking, okay? Because I don't, I mean, the worst thing about that to me would be saying goodbye to my wife and kids. Hey, guys, see you later. I'm going to go get tased today, you know? When I come back, my britches will probably be wet, you know? I mean, I, mean, I, I just, just thinking about that that's coming, you know? I mean, yeah, you know, I, I don't know. I just wonder how that looks. All right, I'm ready. You know, go ahead. Shoot me with the electricity. You know, I mean, man, the, the expectation of that is, is, is terrifying to me that, that this bad thing is coming your way. Well, the Bible says here, you ought to have a fearful expectation of judgment if Jesus Christ is not your sacrifice. Okay? So here's, here's how I want to tie these together. Okay? All right, so let's picture, uh, let's picture, um, who are we going to picture? Um, let's picture Miss Angela, okay? Uh, I'm sorry, Elizabeth. I said Elizabeth, and I was thinking about Angela. Okay, so Elizabeth is up here on the stage, okay? She's up here on the stage, and, and here comes uh, Angela with her grandbaby, okay, with Elizabeth's grandbaby. And she's coming up, and she's coming to hand Elizabeth her grandbaby. Now, I would think that Elizabeth would probably have a posture of eager awaiting, right? Eagerly awaiting. This is something I love. Here comes my grandbaby. I want to hold her. 
There would probably be a posture of extending the hands. Let me have that little baby, right? There'd probably be a smile. There'd probably be joy, okay? Now, Miss Elizabeth's up here, and uh, we start becoming fundamental Baptists, do a little snake handling, you know, okay? So let's say I got a handful of rattlesnakes, all right? Now, I know Elizabeth's a tough cowgirl, but I'm, I'm assuming that if I came up and said, here, Elizabeth, have these, there would probably be a fearful expectation, I would think, I would hope, okay? I would think there would be a drawing back, there would be a making preparations, which would involve get out of here, okay, right? All right, now here's, here's what I want you to see. The only two options for you today, if you believe the realities of the scriptures, are you have Jesus, and therefore what the Bible says is, you will eagerly await him, okay? If you're a believer here today, you have Jesus, and so that means you're living your life eagerly awaiting Christ's return. You're living your life getting ready, getting prepared, hopeful, enjoying, and delighting and looking for Christ's return. Or, only two, only two. Or you don't have Christ. And there's a fearful expectation of the judgment of God that's gonna hit you one second after death. Now here's the reason I preached this, why I preached it, okay? I initially didn't include chapter 10 until late last night. But here's why. I began to think about people that I know And you know what scares me? A large percentage of the people that I know don't exhibit either of those characteristics. Do you get me why that's scary? The large percentage of people that I know, they're not really that excited about Christ coming back. They're not that hopeful. They're not that delighting. They're not getting their life ready. They don't show the characteristics of one who is eagerly expecting and delighting in and awaiting Christ's return. But at the same time, they also do not exhibit the characteristics of fearfully expecting the judgment of God. I started to ask myself, why? I'm not talking about one person or two people. I'm talking about, I think I can name hundreds in my mind that I, I don't think are in either one of those camps. But listen, those are the only camps you can be in. Either have Christ or you don't, right? And so here's my conclusion. There's a lot of people that are not embracing one of those realities, okay? So there's a whole lot of people that aren't embracing the fact that you're gonna live, you're gonna die, and there's gonna be judgment. There's a whole lot of people that are saying, no, that's not true. In their mind, in their heart anyway, you know, it's not, either I'm not, I'm not going to be judged, you know, God just says all good people come in, you know, bring your dog, all dogs go to heaven, you know, there it is. Okay, there's a lot of people that are just telling themselves whatever they want to tell themselves. Here's a scary thought. There's a lot of Christians that for some reason, and I struggle here, for some reason are not embracing the reality of what they have in Christ. And they're not exhibiting that eager awaiting of Christ's return. Or, or, and this may be the big one, or there could be a bunch of people here in the middle who just really aren't embracing the reality that this life's going to end. 
me read something to you. This was out of a Desiring God blog. Wasn't John Piper is another guy, but in 1973, cultural anthropologist Ernest Becker published *The Denial of Death*, a profound book that claimed that people are too terrified of death to face it, because that fear is so deeply rooted and so much more powerful than the immediate fears of one's daily life. The near universal response has been to deny that it's coming at all. This seems to be confirmed in our current culture, especially collegiate culture, as there is a flippant air of invincibility that only gives a second thought to our mortality for the briefest seasons when tragedy strikes. Let me summarize that. Most people don't think about death. And if they do, it's for a few seconds at a funeral and then they push it out of their mind when they leave. And so, so there's this mass of people that are living in a reality that this is all there is. My job, my grandkids, ball games, my mortgage, my promotion. That's all there is. Friends, that's not what the Bible says. The Bible says you're going to live and you're going to die. And then you're going to face a judgment. And you're either going to face it with Jesus Christ as your atoning sacrifice, your high priest, or you're going to face it alone to pay for your sins. But those are the realities. Now, if you don't find yourself in either of those camps, if, honestly, you just look at your life and you say, I'm, I'm really not eagerly awaiting Christ's return, his salvation, what's coming. And I'm really not fearfully expecting judgment for my life. I think you have to ask yourself, what reality am I not believing? Am I not believing the reality of my sin and judgment? Am I one of these people who are, who are continuing deliberately in sin? Am I not believing the goodness of Christ and, and the blessings of salvation? Am I not believing the reality that I'm going to die? But that's real stuff. But something's gone wrong somewhere. Because I, I should be in one of those camps. And if you find yourself in this one, by the way, let's not rest, okay? If you find yourself this morning terrified over the judgment of God in your life, listen, that's not going to save you. But what will, what will save you is that turning you to Jesus and you begin to consider the claims of Christ on your life and what he's done for you. Let's pray. Father, we we need your help, God, just embracing the realities of life and of death and of judgment and of Christ and his sacrifice and his glory and his salvation and his inheritance. God, we, we pray, Father, that those would be real to us today. God, make them real. God, let us see them and feel them. God, let us, let us be convinced. Those things are going to be true for us. Father, I pray that we would live as people with our eyes wide open. God, I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.